All right, so um, last week we talked about interpersonal relationships, and, and it turns out that after last week, uh, as a result of that discussion, uh, someone went deep into the archives and uncovered some very, uh, some very important, hard-working, uh, hard-hitting investigative reporting on the subject of relationships. And, and we just thought that it would be irresponsible for us uh, to completely move on from that without letting you see that material because uh, it's, it's, it's life-changing information, uh, brilliantly done by uh, uh, an amazing reporter. So, so uh, we're just going to take a second here at the beginning and, and refresh you on what we talked about last week. But this is, this is the information we uncovered. So let's go ahead and uh, run that video. Today, we're going to be talking about something special, interpersonal relationships. How do you feel about interpersonal relationships? Hmm? What'd you say? I don't know. It helps you make friends and helps you feel welcome with around people. Mm. I think it's great because it helps me make friends and helps me bond with my family. Um, interpersonal relationships are really, really important because they keep you and your family together. They keep um, you making friends. I think they're like really good to have because if you if you don't have like interpersonal relationships, you like won't be able to do much in your life and you'll just be bored and sitting around the house playing video games and you won't get to do a lot of stuff. It's like fun, and cool. Hmm, who is your best friend in the whole world? Okay, Tyler is one of my best friends. My sisters. My brothers. My friend Ella is my best friend at school. Brady and Niall. My family. Braylon and Marilyn. Interesting. And how did they make you feel? They encourage me and um, they make me feel happy. Like I'm lucky to have such good friends. Nice. Proud. Excited. Sometimes happy, sometimes sad, sometimes. How would you feel without your friends and family? I would feel like I didn't have anybody and that I was on my own. Holy. I would feel like I um, wouldn't have someone around to help me when I needed help. Not fun and nothing to look forward to. I just feel not included in anything. How can you be a good friend to other people? I can be kind to them. 
You can invite them to your house. You can bring stuff to them if they're sick. You can comfort them when they're sad. Be kind and love them. I can obey the Ten Commandments and obey the Bible and use that as a reference to my life. Wow. Hey, by the way, I really enjoyed this interview. Thank you. Helps you understand interpersonal relationships. I'm Braylon for Creation Out TV. Bye bye. See you next time. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <clears throat> so you can see why we we couldn't let that go without sharing the that panel of experts. And uh, the little guy didn't say much, but I think we knew what he was thinking. So. Very well done. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit will be with us today, that you will speak to us and change our outlook to one that is positive and fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 is a, is a text that we repeat in our family. It's a family text for us. And this is a slightly different version than Ariel knows, but we're going to read it in the one you've got here. But Philippians 2, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, I didn't say this was a text we were good at. I said this is a family text that we read to each other. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation... Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Outlook makes a huge difference in your life. I want to read you a list of names. Names of some very important, very significant people who, had you lived in their day, you would have known as leaders and very respectable folks. Let me know how many of these names you recognize. Shemua, son of Zakur. Huh? No? Shaphat, son of Hori. Egal, son of Joseph. Palti, son of Rafu. Gadiel, son of Sodi. Gadi, son of Susi. Amiel, son of Gamali. Sether, son of Michael. Nabi, son of Vofsi. Guel, son of Maki. You remember those guys, right? No? Nothing? All right, let me try two other names on you. Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Joshua, son of Nun. You heard of them, huh? I want to suggest to you today that the reason you don't know those first ten names I read you, but you do know the two names, is because of Outlook. All of these men whose names I just read you experienced the same thing. But outlook is what determined their response and ultimately determined how long they would live. The story goes like this. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. 
So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These were important people. These are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Vofsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, son of Maki. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Then we get this parenthetical. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. That's why you didn't hear Joshua in that list. Twelve men, all of essentially equal standing in their community, all exposed to the same experiences. Yet two would be different from ten. And I'm suggesting to you the difference was outlook. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So the mission God gave them, the mission Moses gave them, was simple and straightforward. Go into the land and bring back a report. So the larger context, Israel... The children of Israel are standing at the border of the promised land. It's been more than two years since they came out of Egypt, but not more than three. And they've been through some amazing, uh, amazing experiences. There was the plagues in Egypt. There was, uh, after they came out, the passage through the Red Sea. They've spent time at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God has given the law and, and other instructions to them. And now Israel is poised on the edge of the promised land. And it's time for them to go up. But if you know this story, you know that isn't what's about to happen. And I'm suggesting that outlook is the reason. Verse 21. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. 
At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So 12 guys, leaders of the people, spend 40 days traveling around together in this land. They saw the exact same sights. They experienced the exact same events. They shared the exact same challenges. And they lived the exact same reality, all 12. But when they got back, they didn't tell the exact same story. Outlook. Verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So basically their report was, the land is good, just look at the fruit. But the land is also full of giants and strong people who live in strong cities. Now, so far, this is primarily just a relating of the facts. Though one can already hear a creeping fearfulness in the telling. And that is why I believe at this point in the text, Caleb jumps in to try to head this off before things get too far. Verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Caleb's outlook is clear and simple, and it isn't based on presumption, nor is it based on foolhardiness. Caleb stands up and says, you know what? All this is true. The land is great. And yes, there are giants and strong people and strong cities in it. But this is the land that God promised us when we were in Egypt. So what are we waiting for? I don't know for sure how we will do it, but if God is for us, who could be against us? Now, I don't guess he necessarily said that phrase exactly because Paul didn't write that for a long time later, but I'll bet he said something close to that. Unfortunately, Caleb's word would not be the last word. Verse 31, But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. They had a little different outlook, didn't they? We are too weak. Yes, the land is good, but it devours its people. And we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. Outlook makes a difference, doesn't it? An outlook will define what you see and what you feel 
and what you believe. You see, a hopeless outlook will quickly lead to despair, to complaining, to faithlessness, and to rebellion. Just watch it happen. Numbers 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. Despair. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, complaining. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Faithlessness. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Rebellion. You see it? And it is at this point that Caleb and Joshua again try to turn things around. Verse 6, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who would explore the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. It's pretty inspiring. Unfortunately, it was too late. The people had already embraced a hopeless outlook. An outlook that said if they go up, they're going to suffer and die. And here's the thing. Once people have embraced a hopeless outlook, they don't really appreciate optimists running around trying to tell a different story. And it is at this point that the Lord steps in. Numbers 14, verse 10, here's what they wanted to do to Caleb and Joshua, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? That's a good question, isn't it? And I'm afraid that's a good question that ought to hit home with us as well. So I got to ask you, how's your outlook? How is your faith in the goodness of the Lord? Can God be trusted with your life and trusted with the eternal outcomes of your life? Can you keep a good outlook even when everything seems dire? I want to stress something again from this story. The difference in response after the spying mission between Caleb and Joshua and the other ten spies was not based on what they saw or experienced in the land. They all saw the exact same things. The difference was their outlook. Caleb and Joshua believed God had promised them the land. And because they took God at his word, they didn't care how high the city walls were 
or how big the giants were or how strong the people were. They were ready to roll. A positive outlook isn't the product of an easy life. A positive outlook is a choice. And it is a choice that must be made every day, every morning. It is the determination to believe that God is good and that God rewards those who are faithful to him regardless of hardships of the past and regardless of hardships yet to come. Think that's not possible? Well, I got another little story for you to watch and then maybe tell me what you think. It is every kid's worst nightmare and six-year-old Jaden Hayes has lived it Ah! twice. First, he lost his dad when he was four. Then last month, his mom died unexpectedly in her sleep. I tried and I tried, I tried to get her away. Couldn't. Jaden is understandably heartbroken. Anybody can die. Does anybody. But there's another side to his grief. A side he first made public a few weeks ago when he told his aunt and now guardian, Barbara DeCola, that he was sick and tired of seeing everyone sad all the time. And he had a plan to fix it. Um, That was the beginning of it. That's where the adventure began. (laughs) Jaden asked his Aunt Barbara to buy a bunch of little toys and bring them here to downtown Savannah, Georgia, near where he lives. Thank you, sweetie. So he could then... Want me to have it? ...give them away. Thank you, man. What is it you're doing? Well, I'm trying to make people smile. Rubber duckies, dinosaurs. Because those are the things that make people smile. Yeah. And what happens to their face? Really? Really. See that man right there? Jaden targets people who aren't already smiling and then turns their day around. You made me smile. He's gone out on four different occasions now, and he's always successful. It's to make you smile. Even if sometimes he doesn't get exactly the reaction he was hoping for. It is just so overwhelming to some people that a six-year-old orphan would give away a toy expecting nothing in return except a smile. Of course, he is paid handsomely in hugs. And his aunt says these reactions have done wonders for Jaden. It's like sheer joy came out of this child. And the more people that he made smile, the more this light shone. Jaden says that's mostly true. But I'm still sad that my mom died. I bet you are. This is by no means a fix. But in the smiles he's made so far, nearly 500 at last count, Jaden has clearly found a purpose. I'm counting on it to beat 33,000. 33,000? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big goal. Mm-hmm. You think you can make that goal? Uh, I think I can. I think he just did. So, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Outlook. Outlook is what keeps the faithful going 
even when things seem impossible. Hebrews 11 tells the stories of many men and women of faith who kept on going when most would have given up or quit. That particular passage ends with these words, verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Well, I suppose for all of them, it it was because they got an immediate reward, right? Well, not so fast. Verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And then comes this admonition to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Outlook. Sure, there were giants in the land, but Caleb and Joshua didn't have their eyes on the giants. They had their eyes on the Lord. And that made all the difference. Sure, there's trials in life. Sometimes both your mom and your dad die. And all society says you would be justified to be angry and rebellious the rest of your days. But some kids just don't see it that way. And I know you have had trouble in your life. And probably you could very well make a case why your outlook ought to be dark. But don't forget, it's not the facts of your life and the world that should determine your outlook. If you look at the world, your outlook will be dark. But if you look at Jesus and fix your eyes on him... You will say, just like Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Outlook. Where have you fixed your eyes? Fix your eyes on Jesus, and you will have hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, show us how we can look away from the trials and fix our eyes on Jesus. Teach us to not be afraid of the giants and the cities with high walls and the strong people, but to believe instead more strongly in your promises and in your word, where you say you will never leave us or forsake us. May we put our hope in all that you have promised to bring about through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.